this is Jamda on the go your review of the content featured in Jamda the research focused monthly journal of Amda the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society a speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them their views or any entity they represent this podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome to JAMDA on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast family, which highlights articles monthly from the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. While 2022 has started with some challenges, there are also some exciting changes as well. I'm very pleased to say that geriatrician, leader in quality care, educator, advocate, caring for the go editor-in-chief emeritus and current society president, Dr. Carl Steinberg, will be taking over as the moderator for Jammed on the Go. Carl uniquely brings his knowledge set to every discussion, and I look forward to his input on the discussions that Dr. Mallory Brown and Dr. Philip Sloan and others will bring to our listeners moving forward. Carl, welcome to your new role with Jamda on the go. Wayne, thank you so much. And you have very, very large shoes to fill here. So I'm honored to be stepping into your, into your shoes in this role. And I wanna thank you for the amazing job you've done in really creating a brand with, with all of the uh, Amda on the go and the subsidiaries like these for our publication. So thank you so much. Uh, just uh, it's amazing what you've done and I look forward to uh, following in your footsteps. So welcome to Jamda on the go for January of 2022. Today we'll be speaking with Jamda co-editor-in-chief Dr. Philip Sloan and associate editor Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan is a family physician and geriatrician with a master's degree in public health. He's the Elizabeth and Oscar Goodwin Distinguished Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and co-director of the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care at the Cecil G. Sheps Center for Health Services Research. Dr. Brown is also a family physician and geriatrician at University of North Carolina, where she is an Associate Professor of Family Medicine and Director of the Residency Training Program. Welcome, Drs. Brown and Sloan. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you. So tell us about today's articles from the January 2022 issue of JAMDA. I'll be talking about two original research studies about exercise for nursing home residents. And I'll be talking about two different topics. One is delirium in the nursing home, and the other one is slowing down as a possible geriatric syndrome. Well, those are great topics that I'm sure are highly relevant to our listeners. So thanks for focusing in on those subject areas. Let's start with delirium in the nursing home. So I think most geriatricians would agree both that delirium goes often underdiagnosed and also that it carries significant negative prognostic implications. So really an important clinical topic. So Dr. Sloan, please tell us what January's JAMDA has to say about this topic. Well, there are two papers, and they're really about two different aspects of delirium. One is about delirium during acute illness, and the other one is about kind of chronic, undetected uh, delirium um, 
within the nursing home. So I think they make a good complement. The first one, it's about acute delirium. It's a prospective study of 145 patients in three nursing facilities in Norway. The investigators monitored them closely by using the confusion assessment method to identify delirium on days one, two, four, and six, and thereafter weekly, whenever there was a change in condition. And during this two month, pretty intensive observation period, these 145 patients had 77 acute events you know, requiring a physician examination of which 72 were managed in the nursing home and only five required hospitalization. When they looked at the delirium assessment data, however, they saw that 60% had developed acute delirium during these events. So what this tells me is that um, things we consider my, minor or that we can treat in the nursing home often are associated by changes in level of consciousness and delirium. They found that delirium was almost always present on day one of the acute illness with only about 5% developing it later. In nearly half, however, it lasted for a week or longer. And risk factors are kind of the usual ones, dementia, number of chronic diseases, and use of benzodiazepines. The second paper looks at kind of chronic prevalent delirium. In other words, delirium in the nursing home residents who are not experiencing an acute event. Now it's from a research group in Canada that used a delirium assessment tool from the minimum data set to identify how many nursing home residents had probably experienced delirium at the time of a routine health assessment. What they found was that probably delirium was present in 5% of routine assessments. Prominent risk factors included the kind of the usual suspects, coexisting dementia, but hearing impairment, vision impairment, and particularly this thing called the CHESS score, which is an MDS measure that can roughly be described as a combination of comorbidities um, and is associated with end-stage illness and mortality. So looking at these two papers on delirium, I see several take-home messages. Now, one is to look for delirium during routine assessments of nursing home residents because it's a marker of both instability and mortality risk. And once we find it, see if there are drugs that can be stopped or reduced, and if there are metabolic problems and sensory deficits that can be ameliorated, because these are the basic ways to try to lower this tendency to have and maintain a delirium state. The other take-home message is to expect delirium to be present in every patient you are asked to assess for a change in condition. If you identify it, perhaps even if you don't, initiate a standardized order set to minimize and reduce acute delirium. You know, things like minimizing sedatives, having a family member present if possible, addressing sensory impairments, um, not interrupting sleep, the other things that Sharon Inouye has described in her seminal work on delirium. Well, that's really interesting. And uh, clearly, uh, we need to look a little bit more closely when people have a change of condition, I think, uh, in the nursing home setting to assess whether or not delirium may be part of their clinical picture. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about this chest score? I, I don't I look at MDSs a lot and I don't see that particular section. How do you calculate a chest mm -hmm. score? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I went to the MDS 3.0 um, um, the documentation, and it's not in there. It is something that some researchers came up with that apparently they use in Canada. Um, it's called Changes in Health, End-Stage Disease, and Symptoms and Signs. Um, it was first developed in 2003. It was updated in 2018. Um, and it has scores ranging from zero to five 
on the, in terms of level of disability is calculated based on nine items. And they're all MDS items, decline in cognition, decline in ADL, dehydration, edema, shortness of breath, vomiting, end-stage disease, weight loss of 5% or more in the last 30 days or 10% or more in the last eight, 180 days, and leaving 25% or more of food uneaten in most meals. In other words, the kind of thing is a combination of things that came out from some big regression analysis. It is not routinely calculated by the MDS. So here we have something that's a research finding that would take a bit of effort to implement. You'd have to go back to that original article and figure out how to do it. Hmm. Well, you know, with the uh, kind of reasonably robust electronic health record systems that many facilities have, I wonder if that's something someone would want to take a look at and just pull those, those data points off the MDS and come up with a chest score and hand it to the clinician. Uh, so thank you for that. So uh, next, we'll remain in the nursing home setting and we'll switch topics to something a little more positive, exercise. It's well established that physical exercise has a whole array of salutary effects on not just our older population, but really everyone. Dr. Brown, I understand you'll be talking about two exercise studies in this month's JAMDA. Please tell us about them. Sure. It seems like a perfect topic for this time of the year, doesn't it? As folks kick off the new year with resolutions of getting into shape, why leave, our, why leave out our older adults? So this particular study, the impact of tailored multi-component exercise for preventing weakness and falls on nursing home residents' functional capacity, was an interesting multi-center randomized trial aimed to determine whether the benefits of long-term, designated as 24 weeks, and short-term, designated as four weeks, training programs persisted after a short six weeks and a long 14-week period of inactivity in older adults in nursing homes. They used the Vivifrail program, which I myself had never heard of, but definitely would encourage you all to learn more about and, and take a look into that. Um, and they used it to individually prescribe exercise for frail older adults, depending on their functional cap capacity. The training included four levels combining strength and power, balance, flexibility, and cardiovascular endurance exercises. The sample size of the study was small, just 24 older adults diagnosed with sarcopenia with slightly more women than men, and the mean age was actually pretty impressive of 87.1. They were allocated into two groups. The first, the long training, short D training group, which completed a 24 week of the supervised vivid frail training followed by six weeks of D training. And then the short training, long detraining group, which completed four weeks of training and 14 weeks of detraining. Um, as an aside, I was not familiar with the term detraining. And basically, it is what you would think it is um, in reading the word. If you stop training and eventually your body will settle at a new state of balance with a lower level of physical capability. This is the definition, if you will, of detraining. And the end result is that you typically get slower. Yeah, when I hear the word detraining, I think of, you know, getting off a train, like deplaning. But uh, <laughs> so it's sort of it's uh, the period of, of uh, stopping exercise where you would expect them to get deconditioned, it sounds like. Yes, yes, exactly. So the study looked at functional capacity and strength um, and evaluated each at baseline and after the short or the long training period and then again after the detraining period. Benefits after short and long exercise interventions persisted when compared with the individual's baseline. 
Vivifrail training was highly effective in the short term, the four-week course, at increasing functional and strength performance, with the exception of hand grip strength. Continued training during the 24-week produced 10% to 20% additional improvement. Frailty status was reversed in 36% of participants, with a high number achieving autonomy. D-training resulted in 10% to 25% loss of strength and functional capacity, even after 24 weeks of training. Excitingly to me, this article offers hope that intermittent strategies such as four weeks of supervised exercise three times yearly, with no more than about three, a little over three months of inactivity between exercise periods, does appear to be an efficient solution to the global challenge of maintaining functional capacity and can even reverse frailty in some vulnerable, vulnerable institutionalized older adults. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting. Thank you for that, Dr. Brown. It's, it's, so the notion that you can do sort of a short-term uh, burst of exercise and then uh, kind of uh, taper off, uh, that sounds like something that uh, could be a little bit more feasible because feasibility is a big issue when it comes to exercise uh, as therapy in the nursing home, especially given the major staffing challenges that our long-term care facilities are facing across our country now and even before the pandemic. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, uh, so I understand that a second study in this month's JAMDA approaches one type of exercise from a feasibility perspective. And can you please tell us about that study? Yes, for sure. <clears throat> so this study um, entitled, Is High-Speed Resistance Training an Efficient and Feasible Exercise Strategy for Frail Nursing Home Residents? is a quick read, but a really interesting one. Numerous studies have reported that some physical capabilities, such as walking and climbing stairs, things that permit our independence as we age, are more dependent on muscle power, which is the capacity to generate strength in a short time interval than on muscle strength. High-speed resistance training has been strongly recommended by experts in the field as a possible strategy to manage frailty in older adults. Such recommendations are based on the fact that high-speed resistance training involves performing concentric muscle contractions as fast as possible in an attempt to provide maximal neuromuscular stimulation to improve muscle power. Frailty is high, highly prevalent in nursing home residents, and understanding of high-speed resistance training might contribute to care of frail patients is an urgent issue. However, as both reduced joint flexibility and cognitive resiliency are common characteristics of these frail nursing home residents, the effectiveness and feasibility of high-speed resistance training in this population becomes questionable. This paper gives a great case example of how high-speed resistance training can be used by our patients and how joint issues as well as cognition can make it perhaps less effective than traditional resistance training. Essentially, Limited joint range of motion can and likely does decrease an individual's ability to complete high-speed resistance training, therefore potentially limiting its effectiveness. While exercise can be good for cognition, high-speed resistance training may be challenging for those older adults with some level of cognitive impairment who are not previously trained in this methodology. So all in all, while the concept of high-speed resistance training is outstanding for combating frailty, there's more work needed to ensure it's safe as well as effective in day-to-day -day life for persons in long-term care settings. 
Well, thanks for that, Dr. Brown. So I'm not real familiar with the notion of high-speed resistance training, but it sounds like it could at least be useful for those who are relatively cognitively intact and who have uh, preserved range of motion. Can you just say a little bit more about what it would actually look like, like what the person's body would actually be doing uh, with this high-speed resistance training? Yeah, I think, I mean, the concept here is that um, folks are performing these concentric muscle contractions as fast as possible. So um, I think of it in, in terms of um, HIIT training, which is a popular form or fashion of exercise for many um, younger adults at this point. So high intensity interval training, but really just repetitively using the muscle to work towards that muscle power as opposed to just strengthening the muscles. Okay, well, great. Well, thanks for that. So for our final topic, we'll be discussing a paper on slowing as a vascular geriatric syndrome. Dr. Sloan, I understand that this month's JAMDA includes both a research paper on slowing plus an editorial written by you and Dr. Greg Warshaw. I can speak from experience that sometimes I feel like I'm slowing down a bit, you know, both cognitively and physically, and I'm not even in the traditional geriatric population quite yet. So uh, what can you tell us about this fascinating clinical topic of slowing? Well, you know, Carl, you know, I, I've always made, we've always make jokes about slowing down. You know, I, <laughs> I taught, I taught a course um, on aging and I always had, what is the first sign of aging? And the answer would be inability to party all night. <laughs> and, you know, and so we do slow down and, and it's clear that mental processes slow down. A lot of things slow down normally. And the question is, well, what's abnormal versus normal? Right. And so I kind of like papers that are clinical and make me think. And this paper did both. You know, it, essentially, it's a cohort of 566 patients averaging 80 years who had been followed in a memory disorders clinic. So clinicians had noticed that three aspects of slowing down seemed to be clustered together. Slow gait speed, slow mental processing, and what they described as slow mood or more accurately apathy. So the measures they used were the four meter walk, you know, which we, a lot of us use, the trail making test part A, another word test for um, mental processing. And then the three apathy related questions from the geriatric depression scale to measure apathy. So then the nice thing is nearly every one of them had an MRI scan. So as they put all this data together, they found two main findings. The first is that all three of these slowing symptoms were related to each other. And the second is that each of these symptoms was very strongly related to several measures of small vessel cerebrovascular disease, you know, specifically white matter hyperintensity, lacuna in the basal ganglia and thalamus and microbleeds deep in the white matter. You know, I'm, we're all, I think, you know, quite interested in this issue of, you know, deep white matter, hyperintensity, what it means. And so I asked Greg Warshaw to help me with an editorial. And uh, he and I discussed at great length the author's proposal that these symptoms should be labeled as a vascular geriatric syndrome. We were dubious because so many other things slow down in aging, just as we said, you know, so picking these three seemed a bit arbitrary. In addition, we felt that what is true in a memory clinic may not be true for this general geriatric population. Still, the paper raised, raised a couple of interesting questions. The first is that yes, slowing is a component of normal aging, 
But if it's too extreme, it becomes abnormal. It can lead to disability and it may indicate underlying disease processes. You know, for example, a slow walk in an 80 year old may be normal, but if that person is too slow to drive or to cross the street safely, then it becomes a disability. And it likely reflects one or more underlying disease processes. So as geriatricians, we haven't been taught to think much about slowing, but it may well deserve more consideration. That's the first point from this. The other is whether with additional research, we might come to see slowing you know, with a clear standardized definition as a cardiovascular risk equivalent. The authors don't talk about that, but it does tap into different dimensions than the classical CAD risk equivalents, you know, which you know, so much research is done on heart disease, but in fact, you know, it's strokes that we worry about more as people get older and that older people worry about more than a heart attack. So now the CAD risk equivalents include, you know, car carotid artery disease, abdominal aortic aneurysm, peripheral artery disease, diabetes, and the 10-year MI risk of at least 20%. So it's worth thinking about whether some, something about slowing, because it's clearly related to this aspect of cerebrovascular disease, whether it could shed further light on stroke risk, which has been less rigorously defined than heart disease. And as we know, it's just more important. So I'm interested in seeing whether this can help move research in a new direction. Well, thank you for that. That's uh, really interesting. And uh, to me, the, the fact that you can correlate these, uh, these clinical findings to actual, um, you know, brain abnormalities, it's, uh, that seems like that's worthy of additional research. And that certainly suggests that, yeah, clearly there's something going on that uh, would pose a risk for uh, further decline and whatnot. Is there something that we could do to intervene on those things? So, um, yeah, great, great topics. Thank you. So, uh, Dr. Sloan and Brown, do you have any additional comments before we wrap up this month's podcast? I don't think so. You know, we're we're still under the shadow of COVID, which keeps deepening, it seems. Um, but all these other things persist, and um, COVID is in some ways an, a layer over all the other medical issues, and so um, it's a tough time. It is. And then for all our listeners, uh, thank you for all the great work that you are doing uh, out there on the front lines or wherever that you are serving the population that we care so deeply about. So I did hear a rumor that uh, you're going to have a special issue next month. Huh. Yes, uh, the February issue is going to be entitled uh, Reimagining Long-Term Care, and it's entirely mm. devoted to essays, editorials, and research related to the topic. I think it's going to be, you know, we've done as much as we can, we've got a lot of really high profile, varied authors. Um, I hope people will take a real careful look at it. And uh, there's a lot of policy work to be done, as we all know. Yes. And, and thank you for the work that you've done. Uh, I know you are uh, really, really in there with a lot of people who are thinking very hard about how we can improve our current system, uh, as there are so many things that uh, are not working well today that the uh, I think the pandemic has just really highlighted. So that's fantastic news. And I'll look forward uh, to chatting with you and Dr. Cheryl Zimmerman, your uh, uh, partner in crime uh, on various levels, but especially as co-editor of JAMDA. And if I can just interject that I really appreciate the way under your and Cheryl's excellent leadership that JAMDA 
has been able to make some issues focus on a particular topic of interest, like the upcoming February issue. That really makes for uh, interesting and cohesive reading. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. So that's going to wrap it up for this Jam to On The Go podcast. It is a pleasure to be with you. And uh, under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Dr. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care, general geriatrics, and beyond. So please take a look at this January 2022 issue that we've just discussed. Dr. Sloan and Brown, thank you for spending your time with JAMDA on the go today. Thank you. Thank you. So references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. J-A-M-D-A, formerly the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association, now the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for JAMDA On The Go. Join AMDA and your colleagues in person at PALTC 22, AMDA's annual conference that's being held in Baltimore, Maryland, March 10th through 13th, 2022. Or, if you prefer a virtual option, you can attend digitally. There's a great program planned with lots of new content on COVID and other clinical and regulatory topics, along with some favorites like our Policy General session, In the Trenches, posters, and more. We'll also have an in-person House of Delegates meeting. Learn more at paltc.org. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.